All right, Marty, you're muted at the moment. <laughs> All right. Okay, sounds good. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, September 28th. I'm Will Tarter, fellow at the Center for Community Solutions and moderator for today's panel conversation, the John W. Barkley Memorial Forum. This is a timely conversation as it has been over a decade of Cuyahoga County government reform since voters approved Issue 6 in November 2009 with 66% of the vote. This implemented a new county executive structure, an 11-member county council, replacing the three-commissioner system. At the same time, voters rejected Issue 5, which would have created a 15-member panel to study and implement government reform. Fast forward 12 years, and in less than six weeks, on November 8th, voters will also decide on a new county executive, just the third person to hold the seat. Cuyahoga County's government serves 1.2 million residents with a roughly $1.5 billion budget. The government reform was met with promises of streamlined services, transparent, effective, and accountable leadership, equity, and accountability. But still, the Charter has seen its fair share of tinkering at the ballot box over the years, and both challenges and opportunities in governance have revealed themselves through the years. So how did we get here? Has the reform upheld its original promise? What lessons have we learned? And what are the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead moving forward? Joining us on stage to discuss this issue is Marsha Goldberg, who's been a member of the League of Women Voters for nearly 40 years. Marsha has served, I'm sorry, that's great. <laughs> Marsha has served as president of the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland and as a member of the League's Observer Corps assigned to Cuyahoga County Council. The League was an early supporter of the charter form of county government and sends a representative to every council meeting. Dale Miller is a member of Cuyahoga County Council representing District 2. He is the chair of the Finance and Budgeting Committee. He has been on council since its inception 
and through his work on county council, has been working to create the effective, efficient, and transparent county government envisioned in the county charter. And joining us virtually is Marty Zanotti, former mayor of Parma Heights. Marty was president of the Cuyahoga County Mayors and City Managers Association from 2007 to 2009. He's been called one of the architects of the county charter and helped lead the transition to the new form of government. If you have questions for our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your questions at the City Club, and City Club staff will try and work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our panelists today. So before we begin, I want to note that it was October 2009 when there was a debate between Issue 5 and Issue 6. That panel was moderated by a young and respected reporter with 90.3 IdeaStream, Mr. Dan Muldrow. <laughs> so it all comes full circle. On that panel was Marty Zanotti. So Mayor Zanotti, we'll start with you. Take okay. us back to 2009 when voters approved the new county charter. What were your expectations of the new county government with the new county executive structure compared to the former one with the three county commissioners? Well, first of all, Will, thank you very much for allowing me to join virtually today um, and for allowing me to participate in this forum. Uh, before I start, I would like to ask you all to keep our friends and family in Florida in your prayers. It's very bad down there right now and going to get much worse. So uh, even though you've had some bad weather in Cleveland lately. Um, you can, can't imagine what it's like for them down there. So, well, county government, I think to answer that question most properly would be to go back to why we did it to begin with. And that is the antiquated form of government uh, created by the state for county governments lacked one basic premise and that was it had no system of checks and balances. Uh, any good government starts with a strong executive and then has a council that uh, an elected body that provides that system of checks and balances. It's the very core of every governmental structure uh, that we have, including that in Washington. We didn't have that in Cuyahoga County. We had a three county commissioner system. And while that system led to gross corruption, it was flawed in its basic nature in that major decisions could be made if two people in the county agreed to do that and there was no checks or balances to the decisions that they were making. Um, we also felt that the county government had the ability to be an economic engine for the, for the region. Um, and you read, you read the, the, the five or six points very clearly. So from that standpoint, that's why we did it. And has the government that we've installed back then and elected by the people back then worked? It's provided the basic premises of what we've talked about, and that is in the system of checks and balances. You can debate at length the success of, of the people that have run it and, and the programs they've developed. But the basic premise that we were looking for uh, of, of creating a system that was accountable to people, 
It had elected representatives that represented various people that was diverse. Um, I think we that that has been accomplished and most of the tweaks that have come since then were anticipated and have only strengthened it. And Marty, just to follow up on that, there's this common perception that the new county government structure was a direct result of the corruption scandal. Is that true or were these two events happening in parallel? It was a coincidence really because um, there was a core group of mayors that I was with at the time that really had been trying to move the county government um, into this type of area for several years prior to the corruption. There's no question that the timing of doing it during this corruption really helped catapult it to, to victory in November. Um, I want to bring you in, Ms. Goldberg. The League of Voters was a resource for voters to learn more about the county charter and its potential to impact county government. Can you share with the audience what this was like for the League and what you all saw in the potential of the new county government structure? Well, the League had been working to restructure county government here since the 1930s. And the Citizens League, the former Citizens League, you may be aware of that, started actually promoting reform in 1917, wanting to have a county executive and a county representative county council. Um, I think the League was so excited in, not that there was corruption, but that this is gonna happen, finally. We pushed and pushed and pushed and had um, a lot of, volunteers out in the streets collecting signatures on the petitions that were, and I know many, many other people worked on this, but the league was determined that this is gonna work this time. And uh, we, were, we were just so excited to finally see it happening. Um, we weren't involved in drafting the charter at all. Gene Kramer, who's here today, did that. The mayors who were involved in making policy that what went toward creating this charter were Bruce Akers is here, Judy Rawson from Shaker Heights, and I know Steve Kaufman, who's not a mayor, he also worked on this, um, and of course Marty. So the league was there right behind them working every moment on the ground to get this done. Councilman Miller, when you started as a councilman, you've been on county council from the beginning. Um, can you share what it was like building the airplane as you were flying? <laughs> so, when I was in, in Columbus in the legislature, I had the Legislative Service Commission to help me and we drafted uh, very well-crafted bills and when I introduced them, they typically got one hearing and that, and that was the end of it because I was in the minority. But, uh, but it, at county council, I came in, I had, had the most legislative experience of any of the council members, but, but almost no legal assistance to work with. And, and I, I drafted some, some very complex pieces of legislation, including the rules of procedure that the council operates under, and the board of control legislation, which, uh, reviews the contracts of $500,000 or less and, and I prepared these and submitted them and they passed fairly quickly. So, mm. so it, was, it, was, it was a very fluid environment in, in which we were trying to build structures and, and also dealing with some serious problems. I, I'm, I know when we first came in, 
there weren't there weren't enough people on the board of revision, and we had to take over the process. And council members had to interview candidates for the board of revisions and and, and make appointments. So, mm -hmm. so it, it was it was uh, was fluid. It was exciting, and and uh, we were. We were dealing with problems and creating structures at the same time. How did you manage expectations um, with the public, you know, because they expected to see this rapid change uh, in this new government? My outlook was uh, steady progress over time. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And, and I wanted to be able to say five or ten years hence uh, that looking back We've come a long way, and yeah. and so so I encourage people to be patient and give it time. Mayor Zanotti, I'm going to come back to you because 12 years ago, when you were here at the City Club, one of the uh, questions that came forward was about 11 county council districts and whether or not we should have at-large districts uh, versus designated <laughs> districts. And one of the things that you said in response to that question was, quote, people don't know anything about county government. <laughs> so do you feel that this is true? Are people unfamiliar with county government? Uh, why or why not? Um, <clears throat> first of all, I, I just, uh, Marcia said that uh, my, my good friend Bruce Akers is in the audience, and I wanted to say hi to Bruce. <laughs> and uh, Bruce was, you know, my, my right-hand man through all this process. So people had no clue what county government did unless it actually impacts your life personally and that's usually through the youth, uh, health and human services and we felt that we needed to try to bring it closer and if they had local representation at least the local mayors and the council members would be able to know the representative and avail themselves to whatever services were available and obviously that has happened by the recent um dispense of uh, our, our funds and, and how they've been distributed within the local communities. Um, I, I don't think 11 and 12 years later, the average voter still knows um, what county government does to any great deal, but you might find that true with, about their city governments and everything else. I'm not sure, unless it impacts you greatly personally, how much people today know about what their local governments do. But this system certainly brought it much closer to home and with people like Dale, I know Dale's always been very good at outreach in the community. I think that just makes it better. Mm -hmm. And Councilman Miller, please. I would, I would just add that there's trade-offs. Early in the county government, there were colleagues of mine that, that, that wanted to uh, have us prepare and print newsletters and mail them out to, to everybody in the county at at public expense on, on a regular basis and, and, uh, and, and perhaps the, the benefits in terms of understanding county government would have been worth it, but, but we decided we didn't want to spend that kind of money and, and uh, we did have, have council members uh, prepare and print newsletters, but they were were distributed at libraries and public meetings, and, and we didn't uh, mail them out to everybody. And, and so we, we were, uh, were trying to do some outreach, but also being cost conscious. 
Uh, very interesting. And then, so I want to bring it to present day. Now that we've kind of seen 12 years later, um, one of the things that Mayor Zanotti talked about was checks and balances. Um, and one of the things I heard during uh, the Issue 6 campaign was all about checks and balances. But it seems like County Council has gotten involved in public policy decisions. Uh, you authored the plastic bag ban, for example. Uh, and then uh, also the racism of the public health crisis. I know um, then Councilman Brown was a champion of that. Um, and then sometimes uh, council can be deferential to the executive branch um, and where there may not be major changes to legislation from the introduced version. Um, can you talk about in this new county structure if checks and balances has been achieved as you envisioned it 12 years ago? So actually, uh, I think checks and balances is one of the strong points of, of the new government. And it, it operates in three main ways. The first one is the budget process. We do a two-year budget, and then in the off years, we do an annual update, and we review all the departments. We make decisions about funding. The, uh, the second aspect is uh, that almost every two weeks at the council meeting, we get a proposal of budget amendments because things keep changing, and these, these have to be approved by the council. So, and, and, and sometimes we pull out some of them for further discussion. And the third part of the checks and balances is that, that the council committees do, uh, do oversight. In the case of the, uh, the ERP project, which was running much behind schedule, the council took the extraordinary step of hiring its own consultant to give us an independent review and consultation on the oversight process. Better tell them what the ERP is. Oh, yes. The, uh, the ERP is the uh, Enterprise Resource Planning System, which, 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 is, <laughs> which, is, which is a huge information technology system decided, designed to merge five or six old antiquated systems into a, a single system, which we ultimately accomplished, but it took a lot of time and effort. And, and so, so, so we did extensive oversight on, on that process. And another aspect, for example, the uh, council initiated legislation. Uh, one of the pieces that I sponsors was a, a comprehensive set of financial policies for the county. One of those policies was that the county had to put out a list every year of all of the county's outstanding loans. Well, the administration was unable to comply with that requirement because the economic development loan accounting was so messed up and we weren't collecting on most of them. And so that prompted an internal audit and the internal audit came up with a, a set of recommendations and then the council's economic development committee did ongoing oversight of the process of, collect, uh, of correcting the problem, which, which we did. So it, it was the combination of, of these, these different checks and balances, the, the, uh, the internal audit, the external audit, the inspector general, the, the council's oversight, these things working together provide uh, a lot of checks and balance. 
I appreciate that and, and for sharing that that insight. You know, one of the interesting parts of the hallmark, I guess, of, of this new kind of government was the consolidation of many elected positions into a single county executive. Um, and we do have an elected uh, county prosecutor. Um, Ms. Goldberg, I want to ask you about that because in 2009, the League of Voters supported maintaining an, elect, uh, uh, an appointed sheriff, but strengthening the protections of the office, calling it a very good compromise. So organizationally, how do you approach the issue of um, determining whether maintaining appointed positions is the best approach with oversight from council versus elected positions? You know, going back early on, we were the league supported early, you know, from the 1930s on various constructions of county government. Sometimes the sheriff was elected in some of those. Um, but we felt, along with a lot of people working on county reform, that appointed, these, the, none of these offices should be elected. Mm -hmm. If you go, you go to vote for a sheriff, do you know what you're voting for? You don't, or an auditor, or an engineer. They should be professionals, and the county executive should appoint them. Mm -hmm. Now, it was 2019 that uh, county charter reform uh, amendment was passed that strengthened the role of the sheriff. So he remains a little independent of the executive who appoints him. Mm -hmm. um, we fought tooth and nail to make sure that did not become another elected position. We mm -hmm. went to county council and uh, testified. Um, I did want to mention also, you're talking about internal audit. We made sure there was an internal audit, well, you did, in the, in the original county charter. There's an internal auditor mm -hmm. who's independent. And then we were always, the league was always concerned about ethics reform. So that in the original charter, it insisted that county council would be passing an ethics ordinance, which it did. But we realized it had to be strengthened, and we worked very hard to, be, to make sure that an um, inspector general <laughs> amendment w was added to the charter, which it mm -hmm. was in 2018. Mm -hmm. So no, we don't, um, the, the county prosecutor remains elected, and it wasn't, it wasn't totally, in fact, not mostly for political reasons. Even before 2009, mm -hmm. um, the league had pushed for always having a separate county prosecutor. Mm -hmm. See, that's I, I, it's fascinating to me just to, to understand kind of the dynamic between appointment, appointing positions, with oversight from council versus uh, elected officials um, accountable to the voters, but also introduces a different paradigm when you have electoral politics in the office. So that I appreciate you bringing that clarification. One hey, Will, yes, Will, yes, Mayor. If I could, you, you tell me to add in when I want it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And those who know me know I'm never shy of doing that. Yeah. Um, the appointed positions was uh, getting this this issue sixth was uh, was a um, shark and was some shark infested waters that we had to or row our way through, and uh, one of the biggest attacks they had was eliminating the appointed positions, and it was um, it was a we fought for it, we kept it, including the sheriff. Uh, one of the main reasons was what Marsha just said. Um, this is a strong executive form of government. So this ultimate success and failure, council will always be able to provide checks and balances and come up with their own legislations. But ultimately the success or failure of any government, and certainly this county government, will be based on having a strong executive. And we felt at the time that this job would attract um, many candidates 
because of its uh, the significance of it. And if you elect a strong executive, one of the things that executive ought to be able to do is to build the staff around them. And the average voter has no idea what a treasurer does or an auditor does or a sheriff does. Um, and consequently, it made no sense to keep those as elected positions. Frankly, all it did for many years in Cuyahoga County was politicize them. It was not a matter of qualifications. It was a matter of, of, of party politics who got those. And I think that you can make a case for whether we've had strong executives or not. That's a discussion for another day. But ultimately, the success and failure of this government will always be predicated on people electing strong executives who can provide some vision and some guidance and work with the council to make things happen. So I would add that the issue of the sheriff remains controversial and, and, and that there's, uh, there's some who, who favor returning to the elective sheriff, particularly citing the problems at the jail. But, uh, but I support the uh, system that we have in the charter because of the unified leadership from the executive. And I would also point out that uh, when COVID-19 hit, we implemented a very effective program to drastically reduce the jail populations so that people with COVID-19 could be segregated. And, and as a result of that, there was not a single fatality among inmates at, at the jail from COVID-19. There, there were a couple of corrections officers who, who passed on due to things somewhat related to COVID-19. But given what went on elsewhere in the country, this was an extraordinary accomplishment. Hmm. Probably one of, one of the most important things that, that, that the new government accomplished that's uh, given very little recognition. Thank you. Um, Mayor, uh, I'm sorry, Mayor, sorry, <laughs> Councilman Miller. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, we talked about was um, the lessons learned in, in these past 12 years of government, kind of looking forward, um, and particularly the next county executive and, and a county council person. Um, so in these last few minutes, I'd like to hear from each of our panelists, what are some qualities or attributes that are essential traits for success in the position of county executive or county council, we'll start with. Uh, start with start, him. Start, okay, start with <laughs> Councilman so, Miller, and we'll work our way across. So, so I'll start and and say that the county government has accomplished a, a reduction in partisanship compared to what you see at the state and federal level, and and, and I think that's very important. It's it's important that that we all work together, that we welcome everybody, that we, uh, we consider everybody's concerns important. And on, on the executive level, uh, you need both vision and in innovation, but also uh, an attention to administrative detail. And, and uh, we tend to reward the former, but but you don't get too much credit for, for the latter, but if you don't have it, it can trip you up. And, and so I think it's very important that, that the executive uh, not only bring in new ideas and exciting new programs, but also 
pay very close attention to the administrative detail and just to deal with the organizational issues. Marcia. Um, I, well, I, I'm here as a representative of the league, and the league wants a strong county executive. Our, my personal feeling is that anyone elected to this post should be very aware of his or her own abilities to manage a bureaucracy. And if that person needs some professional help beyond what they you know, can cope with, get the help. Get a chief of staff who understands how to run the bureaucracy. Hire an, an administrator to help. Uh, I think we've had really good people in these jobs, and sometimes it's an overwhelming job. Even though, I mean, how many of you know what council district you live in? I, I find that people don't really, even though we were excited to change the county structure, people kind of said, oh, isn't, what a relief, we did it, and yet they don't pay attention. In fact, look, look who's running for county council. We have one race out of the five districts, just one. One of our issues is, did this become a full-time job being on county council? It was supposed to be part-time. And when I speak to county council members or city council members, they always think that the mayor or the executive has too much power. And when I speak to the executives, <laughs> they always think the council has too much power. So it's, it's a real balance. And I would hope who, who, whoever is elected as county executive really is humble in what they um, are facing and becomes very... Um, you know, open to working with council, but also finding professionals to help them. Mayor Zanotti. If I were to um, paint my picture of the new county executive, and I think this is a critical election for our county government. Um, first, I think the person needs to be, uh, have the basic capability of building an organizational structure to run the county government. I don't think the county executive should be immersed in the administrative details. Uh, I agree with uh, Councilman Miller. Those need to be taken care of, but I, I fear you get too, too bogged down in the, in the minutia of the government. You need, to build, you need to have a staff. You have enough staffing to be able to do that, but you have to build the right staff. You have to put the right people in charge. This new county executive needs vision, and I would challenge the new county executive to go back to the to the issue six reform, go back to the charter reform, go back to the key points that we suggested this government could do because where this government has fallen flat in, in, in our original charter, I think is in two major areas. And one is in economic development. And I also think in, in regionalization, uh, we believe the county government had the means to uh, provide, to become the economic engine to drive it because they go across all the municipalities. I think there's much work to be done there and it can be successful. And my sense is the council would be more than willing to, to, to go in there toe-to-toe um, -to -toe and help those kinds of things. But I think the new executive needs a vision and needs to, to take the county government to the next level to achieve some of the goals that we thought it could do 12 years ago. Thank you very much, Mayor Zanai. And, and that's actually something that's really interesting. Um, a lot of, not a lot of people know that uh, economic development is actually in the county charter. Uh, it's Article It's in the preamble. In the, in the preamble, yeah, <laughs> prominently. So that's very interesting, and I appreciate you, you raising that awareness. Um, I also uh, want to give you, Marsha, the opportunity to plug uh, <laughs> your, your here, uh, Here's Cuyahoga oh, County. We, pu we published a book like this once a decade, if we're lucky. 
Um, and this one just came out in 2018. So it doesn't even have information about the charter amendments relating to the inspector general or the sheriff. But it gives you a really good breadth of information about how the county is organized. And all of the boards and commissions and special districts, I mean, it is you know, mind-boggling how much the county does do that we are not aware of. Mm. So anyway, we have plenty of these outside. Okay. Pick one up. <laughs> awesome. All right. So at this time, we're going to move to the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our panelists, please tweet at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try and work it into the program. May we have the first question, please? Yes, do you think the new county government has been more attentive to the needs of immigrants, refugees, people of color in general? Anyone want to take a stab at that? So, so I'll start and, uh, and I'll say yes. Uh, certainly the uh, legislation declaring racism as a, as a crisis was, was significant, but uh, we passed an equity plan like in 2013 that, that uh, created structures to, uh, to work on these issues. When, when we, when we came in, the county did not have disparity studies. That, that's what you have to have under the Supreme Court rulings in order to do any, uh, any race-based attempts at re remediation. So, so we, you have to do them every five years and we've been doing them and using them to craft, craft these remedies. And, uh, Regarding uh, working with with refugees and and immigrants, we we just passed legislation for about eight hundred thousand dollars in ARPA money that that's going to be used to assist uh, two organizations that are working with the refugee community and and uh, we also make an annual contribution to Global Cleveland for their work. So so we're uh, we're very much attuned to that. And ARPA is the American Rescue, Rescue Plan. Right, All exactly. right, awesome, thank you. All right, awesome, next question. Yes, uh, so the question really gets to Dale's point about the nonpartisan nature of county government. Unlike the federal and state, which are bitterly divided by partisan interests, as we know, on social issues. In, back, in 09 and today, is there any discussion or thought about having the candidates for county council and county executive run on a nonpartisan basis as they do at the city level in most cities in Cuyahoga County? Well, I can take that one. Yeah, Marcia. We, uh, the league has, I, I, I don't say it's one of our positions, but we have actually pushed for nonpartisan elections at the local level and at the county level. But the pushback from the both parties has been very strong and they've been unwilling to consider that seriously, don't you think, Dale? Uh, it is. It has come up from time to time. It has and, come and, up by and, the league, yes. <laughs> and and uh, it, it's been discussed some as part of the charter review process. And, uh, and I share Marsha's concern that, that uh, she said there's only one contested race for county council this year. And, 
And, and I think if we had nonpartisan elections, there would be more contested races. And, and so, so I would agree we should seriously consider it. Marty, do you want to uh, add to that? It was, it was a major point of debate in creating the charter. And um, I think there was a lot of consensus to making the council positions nonpartisan. But in the end, it's, you have to, you have to mix a lot of uh, uh, ingredients into the final potion, and that was one that we just couldn't get through. But when I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, I still think it serves its purpose uh, of, of intent, and I, I'm a big fan, especially in Cuyahoga County, of nonpartisan. Uh, but well, I think what Dale was speaking about really is how council works. The Republicans and the Democrats yes. on council do work together. Yes, that's primarily what I was referring to, but I think this is a, a very significant issue that requires further discussion. And the 11 districts were created specifically to make sure that the, that there would be Republican representatives on the council because there were, you know, that was an important part. The mixture of the 11 districts was very important. So Marty, could I just ask a quick, quick, quick question? Um, at large members, was there consideration of a couple of at-large members of county council back then or not? I, it was certainly a discussion point, but in reality, people didn't know. Um, we felt that contradicted bringing it closer to home. Yeah. The at-large would just be another layer of somebody running countywide and you know, trying to make the number, you know, it's 1.2 million, 11 reps is 100,000 people per representative and that would have even been a larger number if you had thrown a couple at large in there. Okay, thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next question. Uh, hi, my name is Millie Nixon and I'm from Hawkins School. Um, so my question is, is that as a school, um, the challenge that we're focusing on right now is housing stability. So my question is, why do you think that housing stability is a bigger problem for some areas more than others? Great question. Uh, Councilman Miller, can you start us off? Yes. Uh, I would start by saying that the, uh, the 1940s redlining map still holds sway. If you look at the map in 1940, at, at what, what areas of the county banks were making loans and what areas were, were redlined, the areas that were redlined then are still economically disadvantaged today. And, and uh, what, what's required is us to uh, take extra effort to focus on those areas that uh, have, have been disadvantaged in the past and, and help, help achieve a greater parity. Marsha. Well, I can uh, at least quote from the League's positions on um, housing in the county or uh, greater Cleveland. So enforcement of codes, lead poisoning is a big issue, of course. Mandatory inspections, access for limited income owners, and housing that meets the varying needs of residents, including assistance programs, and adequately funded and efficient housing courts. So those are what we push for on the county level. It's a, it's a really difficult issue. Marty, anything? Okay. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, I know that that's something that's going to be a, a major issue. Um, it already is and going to continue to be a priority in the next the, uh, years. 
the council set up a, a housing trust fund and we put money into housing uh, every year as part of the regular budget. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not, as not as much as it needs to be, but we have a structure in place that's a good start. Excellent, thank you. Uh, next question, please. Um, my name is Lisa Rapaski, and I'm currently a student at Cleveland State, and now it's called the College of Education and Urban Affairs, and we were so lucky to get a table because of Dean Anglin. Um, and I also had the privilege of growing up where Bruce Anglin, uh, I, I went to Orange City School, so I grew up with your son, David. Um, <laughs> I, I was gone for 21 years and have recently come back from California, which is its own beast. Um, and so I'm a student of urban policy, and uh, my question is really kind of twofold. One is, it seems like what the council, in terms of the plastic bag ban, uh, racism as a public health, uh, those have kind of lacked teeth for um, uh, lack of how, I don't know how else to describe it. Coming from a place where plastic bags and styrofoam were banned many, many years ago, this has been quite a uh, adjustment. And then secondly, I think it's called the Sunshine Law, I'm not totally sure, um, where we do highlight conflicts of interest and I don't feel like um, that's discussed enough and I know it came up last year in the congressional race whether Chantel Brown um, gave you know, favor to her boyfriend's company. So those are kind of my two questions. I think it's Sunshine Law, I'm not totally sure, and uh, just think, you know, council decisions having teeth and being implemented. Well, the Sunshine Law relates to open meetings and open records. Um, I, I'm. What was the first part of the question? Was about um, lack of teeth. The lack. Oh, of the lack of teeth. teeth. Well, yeah. you know, the plastic bag ban was set to go, and then COVID hit, and the Ohio legislature threatened to not allow it. Well, actually, the Ohio legislature did pass legislation that partially preempts local communities from doing this kind of regulation. And uh, we think that if we, uh, if we do it in the right way and if we don't uh, impose, uh, impose fines on people and, and if, if we're limited by what the state has, has constrained and, and uh, and we're, we're, we're actively trying to market and, and encourage compliance, and, but uh, we're somewhat limited by the state environment that we're operating under. See, when COVID hit, um, people didn't even want to touch your bags when you went into the store. So we, that, that got delayed by COVID as well. Hey, well, uh, that actually, well, plastic bags is very important. Um, there's even a, a more important layer on top of that, and I'm sure Dale would agree with this, um, and every local mayor, for the last 10 years or so, the Ohio State Legislature has really compromised on the home rule of local municipalities. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, a, that is a, I'm assuming it's still a major problem for local municipalities where the Ohio Legislature decides to stick their nose into and, and devalues the, the importance of home rule. Thank you. Next question. This question uh, came in via text. One goal of any governmental reform would be a governing structure better able to solve big problems. It's not clear that our government is entirely up to the task of solving some very big problems today. 
consider the future of the Justice Center in jail or what's been happening with Child Protective Services, for instance. What should voters and good government advocates make of this situation? Well, I'll take a stab at that. So uh, I will add the opiate crisis to that list, although it's a national crisis. But the, I'm horrified that 700 people die a year in Cuyahoga County. It should be like you can count them on one hand. And, and the, uh, the county government has uh, shown the ability to take bold action at times, like, like when we uh, emptied out the jail to deal with COVID-19 and also when we uh, moved to, to temporary uh, administrative headquarters on a wing and a prayer to, so that the hotel could be built by 2016 and give us a chance to land the Republican convention, which we did. But, uh, but some of these problems have, have proven very difficult and, and it simply uh, requires strong elected leadership at the executive level and good cooperation between the executive and the council and the willingness to consider a wide range of alternatives and the willingness to try some things that you haven't tried before. On, on the opiate crisis, the, uh, the, the executive just sent over legislation which I support to create a $10 million innovation fund out of the opiate money and try to come up with some solutions that we haven't seen before. And, and just because what we've been doing isn't working, I support that. You, you know, you gotta be innovative in government and willing to take a chance, even though not everything you try to do is gonna work. And I don't think the structure of county government, going back to the three commissioner form, would make any difference whatsoever. In would've been worse. Yeah. It would've yeah. been worse. Yeah. Think about the major issues we're dealing with right now. Ultimately, to the question, the answer to the question is, um, uh, you need to elect. You need to elect stronger leaders. Uh, you, you, we this was a, this was this government was based on a strong county executive, and uh, as a council person, Dale can do so much, but without a strong executive, it makes his job just that much more difficult. Think of the jail. Think of the money recently pledged to. Um, the Global Innovation Center, um, those controversial topics in the old form of government would have been decided by three people. Two would have had to agree on something. I mean, two agreed on the MedMart, that's how we got it to begin with. Now, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't rest in just two people's hands. You've got the council there to make sure that what's proposed makes some sense for the, for the, for the government. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, my name's Jack. I'm also with the Cleveland State crew. And I'm definitely in that boat of not fully understanding the role of county government. Um, but I don't just want to ask, what do you guys do? So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame it this way. You like, got the book? I picked up the book. I'll read about it. I'm, yeah, huh. exactly. Um, and also, there's a lot of young people in the room where this isn't really about reform for us anymore. This is just the county council that we know. So we're trying to understand it. Um, so I'll ask it this way. What is unique um, to county council? Like what comes across your table that isn't coming across the state level or the city level? Because I think as we learn civics, we kind of understand the city, we understand the state, 
but what is uniquely coming to you guys? And then in the future, what are some, some issues that you think that the county council is really set up to be attacking, like that they're the ones unique in that position to you know, handle a certain problem? Is there any sort of low-hanging fruit that you think the county should be addressing like that? So I think the health and human services is primarily at the county level, as, as is, uh, is uh, most of the criminal justice. And uh, we, have, we have some unique opportunities to deal with climate change. Uh, the, a, a lot of that leadership is being done at the county level, and, and, uh, and we have an opportunity to make a difference. Excellent. Thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of people think of uh, the county government as the social services safety net, which it is. Um, but going back to the earlier point about uh, economic development also being in the county charter, I'm curious, how do you find that balance between prioritization of health and human services, but also uh, adhering to the economic development mandate in the charter? So I think they're not really separate. Uh, a lot of the social service problems we have are because because people are not stable economically and not able to provide for their families and that there's disparities in, in economic equality and and if we could do better on the economic development then the human services would be better and so so I I consider them as as uh, as different aspects of the overall question of enhancing the well-being of the community. Part of economic development is workforce development. That's been a big push on county council. Um, you, and, they, and they say yes to education. You, they're funding more education for uh, high school graduates here, also working on pre-K. And uh, the workforce development goes hand in hand with health and human services and with economic development and, and job creation. Mm -hmm. it, it all ties together. Of course, when I go to council meetings, I see a lot of discussion of roads and bridges. I mean, it's, there's a lot of just basic things you don't think about when you're you know, voting for your local mayor or voting for president of the United States. Mm -hmm. it's, it, and it, that's how it gets done on the county level. So on the workforce development, I would say that the counties development uh, of, of the partner sector, the sector partnership program has, has revolutionized the workforce development. We're focusing on, on the primary areas. It's information technology, it's healthcare, and it's manufacturing, and we're talking about hospitality being the fourth one, and, and, and we're getting the, uh, the businesses and, and the uh, and the people who are available to serve as better aligned and, and, and it, it's, uh, we're doing better on that. Uh, 10 years ago, it was just totally fragmented and disjointed. It's now only somewhat fragmented and disjointed. So we're, 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 make, we're making progress. Awesome. Next well, the, on economic yeah. development, the, the, the component the county can offer is they can pull things, they can bring the county resources to one location. Too much economic development is focused on cities trying to create more jobs for themselves, bring businesses into their city. And many times that creates an, a non-healthy 
uh, competitive environment that one wins and the other one loses. The best example I can give you is down in Columbus, they just recently, Intel just recently decided that they were going to build, and everyone knows the, the chip plants and the construction jobs and over 3,000 jobs. And, and that's a, maybe it's a harder, harder task for Cuyahoga County, but <clears throat> the county government does have the ability to oversee and try to bring all the resources into one spot. And I think when we talked about economic development, our goal was a gain for the county is a gain for everyone that lives in the county. And I don't think they've, they've done that role um, well since we formed it. And I still think it's a challenge that they need to address for the new executive. So Mayor Zanotti said that we haven't reached our potential on, on regionalization. And I, I agree with that. But, uh, but we haven't done nothing. The, mm -hmm. uh, the executive created an office of regional collaboration and, and, the, and the, the council includes it in one of the, one of the committee's jurisdictions. And, uh, and early in the new government, the, uh, the office of regional collaboration worked with the mayors and managers association and tried to get every municipality to agree to what they call an anti-poaching agreement. <laughs> And, uh, and this resulted in, in some, some long and intractable discussions about what was poaching and what wasn't. And, <laughs> and, and, and I don't know that it, it fully accomplished its purpose, but it did create a little bit more awareness of the problem that, that, that we should try to, try to work, work together and not, a, not against not each against other. One of, one of the wish lists on the league in league positions is that we would have some kind of regional tax base revenue sharing league. So, um, and I'm not talking just about collecting income tax in one spot. I'm talking about sharing property tax uh, funding so that a, a, a city that has a lot of property tax income would share it with others who do not. So that's something that the league has pushed for a long time, but um, it's another tough one very difficult to get somebody to share its money one community to another all right we have one we have time for one last question i want to honor it because okay, she's standing there patiently that's okay please go ahead hi my name is anaya harvey and i'm a junior at the master school of hawken um previously you guys touched on how redlining has a lasting effect on communities i wanted to know um how do you think redlining and segregation of neighborhoods has affected um, how people apply for housing vouchers and the success rate of housing vouchers. Not mine. So uh, that's a difficult <laughs> question. Yes. I think that's the hardest one we've had today. But but uh, but I think there uh, there has been substantial migration in in, in the county. The 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 population keeps changing and and to my mind the uh, the biggest problem is that uh, that housing vouchers aren't accepted everywhere and and so uh, we should we should talk about passing source of income legislation so so that if you're paying for your housing with a voucher that shouldn't be a reason that you could be denied uh, housing and, and I think 
making that change would be beneficial. Thank you. And, and, and also, it's interesting how housing uh, plays a huge part of the social determinants of health, which also impacts economic development and workforce. So um, I thank you very much for that outstanding question. All right. Well, thank you to Marsha, to Dale, to Marty for being uh, here with us today. Thank you. Uh, today's forum is the John W. Barclay Memorial Forum. Mr. Barclay was a City Club member for 70 years, joining in 1916, just three years after the City Club's founding. He began his career as a social worker and had several jobs in the Cleveland school system before joining the law firm of Squire, Sanders, and Dempsey. Mr. Barclay also served as the mayor of Shaker Heights in the 1950s. We're grateful for the support of the Barclay family who have made this annual forum possible. We'd like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by Cleveland State University College of Education and Urban Affairs at the Mastery School of Hawken and MC Square STEM High School. Thank you all for being here today. Just announced on Tuesday, October 4th, you're welcome to join the City Club for breakfast with Chuck Todd, moderator of Meet the Press on NBC News. He'll discuss the political landscape of the state and nation. And on Friday, October 28th, we'll be joined by Dave Isay, former, I'm sorry, founder of StoryCorps for the City Club's 2022 annual meeting. Tickets are still available for each of these forums. You can find out more at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you to each of our panelists, Mary Zanotti, Marsha Goldberg, Dale Miller, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Will Tarter, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.